0: from the Greek word mormo but this is not the case there was no Greek or Latin upon the plates from which I I through the grace of the Lord translated the Book of Mormon the word Mormon literally means more good and so we'll study this prophet Mormon who literally did more good for anyone uh, than anyone um, maybe throughout history um, except for, of course, Jesus Christ, in compiling this and in recording this and in trying to bless his people that would not participate in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all the while, he kept, he kept his faith, he kept his testimony. The world around him was falling apart, and he was strong and steadfast, as was his son Moroni. So it's interesting to compare that, um, some similarities between Mormon and the prophet Joseph that I never realized before. Um, they both had a prophet who buried their gold plates in a hill near their home close to them when they were young and told them that they, at a future time they would go to the hill and obtain the plates. They both started their official work at age 24. They both had a glorious vision of the Lord when they were very young. Joseph, as you know, was 14. Uh, Mormon said that he was um, visited of the Lord and, when he was 15. After the vision, they tried to share part of what they had learned, but they were rejected by the people. Both were physically large and powerful men for their day. Both had the same name as their father. Both were born into a state of general apostasy. Both led their people as a military leader, a prophet, a dispensational head, and record keeper. One was an abridger as Mormon, and the other, Joseph, was the translator of the gold plates. They both had their enemies' persecutions become so intense that several times they were forced to leave their their homes and move their people from city to city. Their enemies' persecutions continued until they succeeded in, in murdering them both. The continued rejection of their message by the general population resulted in a civil war which divided the North from the South in the costliest casualty war of their era. That's interesting that this, um, this author links, uh, um, Brand Gardner links the civil war um, being a retribution from what happened with the, to the saints being driven out. And there was a civil war in, in uh, Americas with Mormon. So Joseph and Mormon have a lot of similarities. They were both wonderful prophets. Um, We'll just go in through Mormon 1. It begins in the year 3, this is from about 321 to 326 AD. And it's been 285 years since Jesus appeared um, on the continent. And they had that wonderful 200 years of peace and they said there had never been a happier people on the earth when Jesus came for that 200 years of peace and how short-lived that was um, through disobedience so Mormon um, if we start right at the beginning I have to use my glasses now and then um, in verse 1 Mormon says that he makes a record of things he has both seen and heard and called it the Book of Mormon about the time, verse 2, that Amarin, and Amorim is a grandson of Nephi, who is the disciple of Christ. So this is his grandson, Amorim, who is a prophet. He's the brother of Amos, who was a prophet before that. He came to, to uh, Mormon when he was, it says, I being about 10 years of age, and I began to be learned somewhat after the manner of the learning of my people. And Amoron said unto me, I perceive that thou art a sober child and are quick to observe. So I wonder, quick to observe. Um, Elder Bednar tells us the word observe has two primary uses here. Observe denotes to look, to see, or to notice. Isaiah said, seeing many things, but thou observeth not, opening the ears, and but hearing not. So you can see, but not observe. And the second part of observe means to obey, to keep. But blessed are they who have who keep the commandment and observed the commandments for they shall obtain mercy and so elder bednar says thus when we are quick to observe we promptly look or notice and obey and the prophet mormon is an impressive example of this gift in action being quick to observe is an antecedent to and is linked with the gift of discernment That's interesting. We can hope to obtain that supernal gift of discernment and its light of protection and direction only if we are quick to observe, if we both look and obey. So there's many things we can learn through this lesson. And one is that we need to be quick to observe. Um, So we keep going through this. and. Mormon says that um, a little further, verse three, when he was, Amaran tells him this. He's only ten, so he has to remember all this, and he has to um, live worthy until then. He has to this. His whole life um, is a series of um, this whole mission that he is on, and we will follow him from when he is ten to seventy-four. His entire life is a mission, and it is a hard, sad life for him. But he is diligent throughout. So Amaron tells him, when he's 24, um, I would that you should remember the things that ye have observed keep uh, concerning this people. And then he tells him to go to a hill called Shem. And he says in verse 4, to take the plates of Nephi unto yourself. So this is when he's 24. And the remainder ye shall leave in the place where they are. And ye shall engrave on the plates of Nephi all the things that you have observed concerning this people. In verse 5, and I, Mormon, being a descendant of, of Nephi, and my father's name was Mormon, I remembered. That's part of keeping the commandments, is remembering the things that Amorim commanded me. And um, so then when he was 11, he was carried, he said, he went into the land, they, their family moved into the land of, of Zarahemla. And the next few verses tell about that land verse 7 he said the whole face of the land was covered with buildings and the people were almost as numerous as the sands of the sea this is a huge population that is, is here now and they are so numerous and he's observing in verse 8 there began to be wars between the Nephites and the Lamanites and this is what he saw his entire life he always lived with war there were several years there was a ten-year period there were a few years here and there when they didn't have war But he had the threat of war and war looming over him his entire life. And so um, in verse 11, it talks about that uh, the Nephites came to battle. They had 30,000 people. And the Nephites had beat the Lamanites and slay many of them. Verse 12, they had peace for the space of about four years. And um, verse 13, but wickedness to prevail over the face of the whole land, inasmuch that the Lord did take away his beloved disciples, and the work of miracles and of healing did cease because of the iniquity of the people. And there were no gifts from the Lord, and the Holy Ghost did not come upon any because of their wickedness and unbelief. So who were these disciples that were taken? Three Nephites. Yeah, the three Nephites that asked the Lord if they could remain on the earth and they were ministering. There were very few righteous then and they were there and they had gifts of the Spirit and there were miracles. But because of the wickedness of the people and their unbelief, they were taken from them. I guess we could spend all morning telling three Nephite stories, couldn't we? Everybody has heard them before. I believe them. I, we have two in our family. We, you know, who knows if this was really them? But we know that the three Nephites are still ministering on this earth today and and um, are here to bless people here to proclaim the gospel here to minister and they are among us we don't know where they are but they're wonderful servants that were permitted to remain but they were banished from this area the lord would not let them be here during this time because there was no faith and no righteousness And so this is verse 15. Um, He says, I, being 15 years of age, and being somewhat of a sober mind, serious-minded, mature for his age. Therefore, I was visited of the Lord and tasted and knew of the goodness of Jesus. This was probably the highlight of his life here, that he said he was visited of the Lord. We don't know how it happened. That's all he mentioned. But like Joseph, the Lord came to him and comforted him and gave him direction. And that was... um, that was a powerful uh, visitation that affected his testimony for the rest of his life um, so the scriptures uh, we, we're trying to apply them to our life we're trying to take these things that we learn and apply and so in my book commentary by david ridges he, he wrote a few ideas about how to survive when your world is falling apart all around you and this was mormons mormons uh, world and the first key Is what what happened to him he had a visitation that doesn't happen with everyone? But the the main idea the key is that we must gain our own testimony of the gospel We must have our own experience with the Lord. We must seek him in prayer and have him We need to speak to him and have him reply in our hearts and our minds The Book of Mormon says I mean the Doctrine and Covenant says behold I will tell you in your heart and in your mind by the Holy Ghost And that's how the Lord usually speaks with us, through impressions on our mind and feelings in our heart. And so we need to, uh, the first key is to gain our own witness, our own testimony as Moroni was visited the Lord. And we can all know the goodness of Jesus. And so um, then, then he said that he attempted to preach to this people in verse 16 but it was like casting his his pearls before swine, what the Lord said in the Bible, that his mouth was shut, I was forbidden that I should preach to them, for they willfully rebelled against their God, and the disciples were taken from them. And so he was forbidden, the next verse, to preach unto them because of the hardness of their hearts, because of the hardness of their hearts, they did not have the spirit. And um, so, they became, these people became without feeling, they became like Laman and Lemuel were, they were past feeling, what Nephi told his brothers, He has spoken to you in a still, small voice, but ye were past feeling, that you could not feel his words. And so the angel had to come and shake them and, and scare them, and Mormon later says, writes to his son Moroni that the only time these people listen to me is when I speak with sharpness and boldness, and they tremble before me, but then they go right back to their old ways. And so the spirit is of a higher order than, than angels. The spirit administers through the Melchizedek priesthood, the angels administer by the Aaronic priesthood. So that's why the Lord said it is better to believe than to have, and to have not seen and believe than to have seen. So the gift of the Holy Ghost is our most powerful gift and our most powerful and reliable witness of Jesus Christ. Um, It says that this land had become so wicked, verse 18 and 19, that the Gadianton robbers, these are the secret combinations, did infest the land and it came to pass that they did hide up their treasures into the earth and they became slippery because the Lord had cursed the land and they could not hold them or retain them again they couldn't even put a tool down, they couldn't put anything down, it'd be stolen. Their civilization had deteriorated so much. And it came to pass, uh, verse 19, there were sorcerers and witchcrafts and magic and the power of the evil one was wrought upon all the face of the land, even unto the fulfilling of all the words of Abinadi. Um, The worlds of the prophets are always fulfilled. We see that over and over as a theme in the Book of Mormon. They will always come to pass. And so this became a dangerous land and was so wicked that nobody was allowed to preach the gospel to them. We go on to Mormon 2. This time period is uh, 327 to 350 A.D. And Mormon is now 15. Well, he's been 15 when he received that visit. But imagine uh, what happens next. In verse 1, it says that uh, he was being large of stature. Therefore, the people of Nephi appointed me that I should be their leader or the leader of their armies. Therefore, it was in my sixteenth year—he was fifteen, he was in his sixteenth year— I did go forth at the head of an army of the Nephites against the Lamanites. A fifteen-year-old boy is who they chose to lead the whole Nephite army that is vast—thousands of warriors. And why did they choose him? Because they knew he was steadfast and righteous. Even though they weren't, they wanted him at the helm. And of all the people they could have chosen, all the seasoned warriors, they chose a 15-year-old boy to lead them. It's incredible. And it shows that his, the power that he had. And it was evident to people around him. Even though they didn't partake of it, they wouldn't listen. But they wanted him to lead them. Um, So it said that he went ahead and led them in verse 13 against the Lamanites. But the Lamanites came with such power and they had so many people. It did frighten my armies. Therefore, they would not fight and they began to retreat. You compare that to the stripling warriors, the young boys that were in, in their early teens that fought with such valor and courage. And these men would not fight because they were so scared. They didn't have the Lord with them. And they were so afraid that they retreated. And it said that they drove them out of the city, out of the land of David. And uh, they went into the land of Joshua, verse 6, and they gathered their people together, Um, verse 8. It said, but the land was filled with robbers and with Lamanites, and notwithstanding the great destruction which hung over my people. And he always refers to them as my people, even though they were so wicked, and they uh, did not listen to him. They did not repent of their evil doings. Therefore, there was blood and carnage spread throughout all the face of the land, both on the part of the Nephites and the part of the Lamanites. And it was one complete revolution throughout all the face of the land. So the whole land was in commotion. The whole land was in war. and, um, and Um, it was so destructive because they would not repent. And this theme keeps happening over and over. The Lord extends his hand. He tells him other times to preach. He keeps giving them mercy and chances. That's why we can't say, the Lord, I've done too many things. I I keep asking for forgiveness for the same things, and I'm sorry, but I, I don't want to weary the Lord because I keep repenting. We are to repent our whole lives. The Lord has his arms stretched in mercy toward us. And invites us to repent. And he did that with his people, even though they were so wicked. Um, it says in verse ten, the Nephi, that um, in verse nine, that they had an army. They took an army of forty-four thousand. This young boy is leading this army of forty-four thousand, and withstood him. Uh, they had forty-four, the Lamanites, and he withstood them with forty-two thousand. And I did beat him with my army. And so they had a little bit of victory. Once in a while, they would lead vic- have victories, but he said the Lord wasn't with them. And in verse 10, the Nephites began to repent of their iniquities and began to cry, even as been prophesied by Samuel the prophet. So no man could keep that which was his own, for there were so many wicked things going on verse 11 there was mourning and lamentation in all the land because of these things because of the wickedness verse 12 and it came to pass that when i mormon saw their lamentation and their mourning and sorrow before the lord my heart did begin to rejoice within me knowing the mercies of the long suffering of the lord knowing it was possible for them to repent Therefore, supposing that he would be merciful unto them, that they would again become a righteous people. So he kept getting his hopes up. He's like, oh my gosh, they're, they're starting to repent. This is wonderful. There's their mourning about how wicked their land is and how they can't keep anything and how hard it is and their losses. But in verse 13, his hopes are dashed. He said, behold, this my joy was in vain, for their sorrow was not unto repentance because of the goodness of God. But it was rather the sorrowing of, of the damned because the Lord would not always suffer them um, to take happiness in sin. Isn't that interesting? We usually don't get, a lot of times, we don't get justice in this world. We look to the next world sometimes for justice, but many times um, it's the wicked that punish the wicked, and that uh, the, it said that the Lord would not always suffer them to take happiness in sin. So he was so discouraged because they couldn't, um, they didn't repent to the Lord, they just were sorry that they were having all these things happen. President Benson said, It is not uncommon to find men and women in the world who feel remorse for the things that they do. Sometimes this is because their actions cause them or loved one great sorrow and misery. Sometimes their sorrow is caused because they are caught and punished for their actions. Such worldly feelings do not constitute godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is a gift of the spirit. It is a deep realization that our actions have offended our Father and our God. They didn't have godly sorrow. They had the sorrowing of the damned because of what was going on with them. Verse 13, um, we did verse 13. Verse 14, they did not come into Jesus with broken hearts, and contrite spirits but they did curse God and wish to die nevertheless they would struggle with their sword for their lives they couldn't see it right in front of them they just needed to repent but they wanted to curse God and die because of their awful situation and my sorrow did return unto me again and I saw that the day of grace that's the help from God was passed with them both temporally and spiritually for i saw thousands of them hewn down in open rebellion against their god and heaped up as dung upon the face of the land what a horrible scene he is filled with sorrow constantly because they are in open rebellion against god they know what they're doing and they will not repent um mormon he was, still, he was blessed, but he experienced all these hard emotions. He was often sad, frustrated, angry, discouraged, lonely, most of the time. As I said, he rarely had a few years of peace, and yet the Lord sustained him. And he was kind of the prophet that somebody has to do it, someone has to record, someone has to testify, someone has to try, and he was that prophet that was chosen. And so the second key to surviving during turbulent times, and we live in turbulent times, not as bad as this, but um, many things are, are similar. But we live in times that are very tur- turbulent and where people are not looking to God and are sinning openly and willfully. And um, we, need to keep, we need to keep at, at spreading the gospel. The second key to turbulent times is your personal and strict obedience to your righteous commitments and covenants, that you keep the commandments even if people around you are not, even if our family members are not. We keep the commandments. We keep our covenants we made in the temple and at baptism. Um, And he says in in (laughs) verse 17, I remembered the things which Amron had commanded me, um, I had gone according to the word of Amoron and taken the plates of Nephi and make a record ac- according to the words of Amarin. So he, that was the first thing he was told to do is to take the plates. And then in verse seven, in 17, he had to take and remove them. Um, verse, so um, verse 19, here's another key to li- living and uh, to survive tur- turbulent times. Your confidence in your personal standing with God. So all around him, the world's falling apart, and he could get caught up. He was discouraged, he was full of despair many times, but he knew that, God, that he had a relationship with God and that he was living in accordance with his plan. Verse 18, at the very end it says, for behold, a continual, continual scene of wickedness and abominations has been before my eyes ever since I have been sufficient to behold the ways of man. Ever since he was old enough to know what was going on, he knew of this wickedness, and he had to live with it. This was his world. And so, uh, woe is me because of their wickedness, for my heart has been filled with sorrow because of their wickedness all my days. Nevertheless, here's his testimony, and his confidence in God, I know that I shall be lifted up at the last day. And how did he know that? Because he had a relationship with the Lord. He knew who he was. Um, our own sister Wixom, who um, you know from our stake, who is who is the the stake primary, I mean the the general primary president, spoke about how important it was. She felt her number one duty was to teach a sense of divine um, destiny, of tell people who they were, have these children remember who they were. Um, my sister Maria, who's here today, came to came to listen to me, which was so nice. Um, has done a lot of research and and work in different fields, and, and about women, and about uh, powerful stories that are inspirational. And one of them, a person that she really admires, is Joseph F. Smith. And may, may, maybe many of you are familiar of, of this story, but um, he was, uh, uh, as you know, he was Hiram and Mary Fielding Smith's son. He was born in dire circumstances in far west. At the time, the saints were forced out of Missouri, and his father and the others were thrown into the Richmond jail. As a six-year-old boy in Nauvoo, Joseph F. Smith never forgot seeing his father for the last time, went on the way to Carthage on horseback. He picked up his son, kissed him, and set him down. Neither could, could Joseph ever forget the terror of hearing a neighbor rap on the window at night to tell his mother that Hiram and his uncle Joseph had been killed, nor of her subsequent anguish and grief. So at nine years old, this young boy accompanies his widowed mother, Mary Fielding, across the plains to Utah. Four years after arriving in the Salt Lake Valley, she too passed away. Imagine that. Now he's an orphan at the age of 13. When he was 15, he was ordained an elder and sent to Hawaii as a missionary. Tell all your 18-year-olds they're not too young. This laddie went to to, um, Hawaii as a 15-year-old missionary. Much of the time he labored alone. He had no money. It was in these discouraging circumstances that Joseph F. received the following vision. He said, I was almost naked and entirely friendless, except for the friendship of a poor, benighted, degraded people. I felt as if I was so debased in my condition of poverty, lack of intelligence and knowledge, just a boy that I hardly dare look a man in the face. While in that condition, I dreamed one night that I was on a journey, and I was impressed that I ought to hurry—hurry with all my might, for fear I might be late. I rushed on my way as fast as I could and was only conscious of having a little bundle, a handkerchief uh, wrapped in it, and I came to a wonderful mansion. It seemed too large, too great to have been made by hand, but I thought I knew my destination. He went into it, and he um, rushed to appear to a great opening and knocked on the door, and the man that opened it was the Prophet Joseph. He looked at me a little reprovingly, and the first words he said were, Joseph, you are late. Yes, he replied, but I am clean. I am clean. He clasped my hands and drew me in and closed the great door. I felt his hands just as tangible as I had ever felt the hand of any man. I knew him, and when I entered, I saw my father and Brigham and Heber and Willard and other good men I had known, and my mother was there. When I awoke, alone, way up in the mountains in Hawaii, I was a man, although only a boy. There was not anything in the world that I feared. I could meet any man or woman or child and look them in the face, feeling in my soul that I was a man every whit. That vision, that manifestation and witness that I enjoyed at that time has made me what I am. If I am anything that is good or clean or upright before the Lord, if there's any good in me, that has helped me out of every trial and through every difficulty. I felt as if I was lifted out of a slum, out of a despair, out of the wretched condition that I was in, and naked as I was, I was not afraid of any man, and I have not, not been very much afraid of anybody since that time. I know that was a reality. It showed to me my duty to teach me something and to impress upon me something I cannot forget. I hope it can never be banished from my mind. So Joseph F. was given an understanding of who he truly was, apart from his temporal circumstances. He was a child of God, a son of noble parents. He had a divine birthright and destiny. When he truly comprehended that he was known and loved of God and by an army of valiant spirits on the other side of the veil, it gave him the courage and strength he needed to fulfill his mission and to go on to consecrate his life to building up the kingdom of God on the earth. Isn't that a beautiful example? of uh, the Lord giving him an opportunity to teach him who he was, his divine identity. And that is the key to surviving these turbulent times to know who we are, that we're children of God, and we have a divine destiny. Um, Elder Benson, President Benson said, a wholesome view of self-worth is best established by a close relationship with God. So uh, back to the to Mormon. Um, they were, the people were hunted, they were hunted and driven. And imagine him leading them, even all this was happening to them, and he was living righteously, but he knew that they could not win. And um, the, in verse 23, he did speak to them, many times they would not fight, but in verse 23, I did speak to them with great energy that they would stand boldly before the Lamanites and fight for their wives and their children and their houses and their homes. And my words did arouse them somewhat to vigor, so they did not flee from the Lamanites, and they, they contended against them. And so that they contended, um, they had 30,000, they contended against someone, uh, the Lamanites with 50,000, and they did flee for, from us. And they did pursue them. And, they, and he, all these times, every time they win a battle, he thinks maybe they'll return. Maybe they will be diligent and believe again. But they still were so wicked. It continued. Um, verse 23 and let's see verse 23 and I mean 26 says my heart did take sorrow because of this great calamity of my people because of their wickedness and their abominations and they again took possession of our lands and so um, he said that the strength of the Lord oh this is the scripture I was looking for verse 26 he said in the middle of it, the strength of the Lord was not with us. Yea, we were left to ourselves that the Spirit of the Lord did not abide in us. Therefore we had become weak, likened to our brethren. And that is what happens when we don't, we don't go with God. We will become weak and uh, Satan can toss us to and fro. He can do whatever he will with us. He will not stand by us if we are not obedient. Um, that's our life without the Lord. Um, So then uh, Elder Holland said, Mormon faced the most hopeless of all military tasks, fighting when the strength of the Lord was not with him. He fought against the enemy with sword and shield, but he also tried to pierce the heart of his own people with strong testimony, but his cry was in vain. These people would not make that one crucial admission that the Lord God of Israel held the keys to their success. The warring would go on. So how are we left to our own strength sometimes? If we sin, if we don't turn to the Lord, if we go many times uh, without praying, without seeking Him, without having the Spirit in our lives, we all can tell the difference when we have the Lord in our lives and we are left to our own strength. And then it's whatever happens, however hard we work, whatever we do, but the Lord um, doesn't sustain us if we are, are, don't repent, we don't sin, if we sin but yet his hand is always extended to rep- to come back. And we are weak, and that's why we take the sacrament every week, we renew our covenants. Um, the Lord said in the doctrine and covenants of covenants of the people during that time, but it also could apply to us. And this is human nature in DNC 1, well, sorry, 101, seven through nine, they were slow to hearken unto the voice of the Lord their God. Therefore, the Lord their God is slow to hearken unto their prayers, to answer them in the day of their trouble. In the day of their peace, they esteemed lightly my counsel. But in the day of their trouble, of necessity, they fell after me. That's DNC 101, 7 through 9. So it's, we, we're fine. Things are going well. Sometimes we don't think of God. We, maybe we don't seek the Spirit. We don't pray as hard. We don't read as hard. We don't try to, to live as good, but when we're in trouble, it's the first one we call, help us. In the day of their trouble, they ne- of necessity, they feel after me, and the Lord still extends his hand to us. So um, all through this, another inspired learning is uh, he prayed constantly for his people, we need to pray on, as the Lord said, and if we do not pray out loud, that we continue, as Jesus said when he appeared to them, to not cease to pray in our hearts. One of my favorite scriptures on thats DNC uh, Doctrine and Covenants 6, 36 through 7. Look unto me in every thought, doubt not, fear not. Wouldn't that be a powerful thing to have on your mirror? Look unto me in every thought, doubt not, fear not. And then the next scripture I didn't really pay attention to until I looked at this again. And it says, Behold the wounds which pierced my side and also the prints of the nails in my hand and feet. Be faithful, keep my commandments, and you shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. In other words, we look to him because why? Because he atoned for us, because he's our savior. Because look at his wounds, look at what he did for us. Remember what he did for us, the greatest word in the in our vocabulary, to remember what he did for us, um, and then we could go on with our with our struggles. Okay, we got to keep moving. Mormon three, this is uh, the years three sixty 360 to three sixty two A.D. and Mormon is forty nine years old, and they have ten glorious years of peace. How wonderful that would that have been to not have fighting for ten years, and. Um, but he spent that time in preparing, and he also decided to preach. He said the Lord told him to cry unto this people, verse 2, repent, come unto me, be baptized, and build up again my church, and ye shall be spared. And this is their last chance. Verse 3, I did cry unto this people, but it was in vain. They did not realize that it was the Lord that had spared them and granted unto them a chance for repentance. So they were blessed in some battles, and they didn't attribute it to the Lord. And they did not, uh, they still didn't repent. Um, we, we have a new state president now, um, President White. And he said in his very first meeting with some of the counselors, something that was maybe shocked them at first, but then they understood. He said, uh, brethren, I, I invite you all to repent. And that didn't mean that he knew of their personal sins or anything, but he said he taught that repentance is a continuous process. We should go through our whole lives, and he wanted them to repent so that they could have more revelation for our stake. Open up the, the doors of revelation, which is what Joseph learned all through his, the restoration. If, if we repent, we are open to the Spirit, and the Lord can bless us. President White said this in our Word Conference conferences, I wonder how well we understand repentance. When we hear the word repentance, it often creates in us an uneasiness and brings forth negative emotions. We associate with it with guilt, shame, and weakness. A true understanding of repentance brings optimism, strength, and the desire to act. Repentance is one of the happiest words in the English language, because it means there is hope for each of us to go beyond what we are today to become something greater. I love that repentance isn't negative repentance is wonderful it's a happy word because it says we can become something we are not today we can be something something greater president nelson said repentance is a resplendent gift it is a process never to be feared it is a gift for us to receive with joy and to use even embrace day after day as we seek to become more like our savior so I, that affected how I feel about re, about that word, repentance, and that what, a, what a blessing it is in our lives. And we need to use it more on an everyday basis. And so uh, back to the story here, um, the people are still so wicked and aren't repenting. And so in um, verse 11, Nephi tells them, I mean, Mormon tells them, I did utterly refuse from this time forth to be a commander and leader of this people because of their wickedness and abomination. Verse 12, but in the middle of it, I had loved them according to the love of God which is in me with all my heart, and my soul has been poured out unto prayer, in prayer unto my God all the day long for them. Nevertheless, it was without faith because of their hardness of their hearts. He loved them so much. He's a Christ-like figure that he is praying for them, extending um, mercy to them and love them, even though he can't lead them anymore because of their wickedness, and he knows God is not with them. Um, we've got to keep moving on. Let's see. Um, I think I better just go to Mormon, um, four. Well, let's see. Sorry. Toward the end of, let me just go to verse 17 of Mormon three. He decides if he can't preach to them that he will write to us. He writes to three people. He writes to us. He writes to the Gentiles, which is part of us, the 12 tribes, he writes to the Lamanites and those are his enemies. He writes to those people and for the for the three causes, the three reasons he writes, to issue a warning that we will all be judged someday, so we, to prepare that we are going to be judged for what we do. The second reason is so that we might believe in Jesus Christ and the third is so that the Jews will have a witness that Jesus is the Christ. These are the reasons he writes and records what he does. So Mormon, Mormon 4, This is 363 to 375 AD. Um, Everything has become so wicked that they can't, um, they're punishing themselves. C.S. Lewis wrote When souls become wicked, they will hurt one another. And this perhaps accounts for four fifths of the suffering of men. It is men, not God, who have produced racks, whips, prisons, slavery, guns, bayonets, and bombs. It is by human stupidity, not by the foolishness of nature, that we have poverty and overwork. Everyone, a lot of times, God gets blamed when things go wrong. and All these horrible things happened. How could he let this happen? It is man that has chosen this. God is standing with his arms open and saying, repent and come unto me. And so all through Mormon um, 4, the people are, there's wars back and forth. They're driven back. And they, so they win some and they lose some. And in verse 11, he says, it is impossible for the tongue to describe or man to write a perfect description of the horrible scene of the blood and carnage which was among the people. But every heart was hardened, so they delighted in the shedding of blood. Verse 12, never has there been so great wickedness among all the children of Lehi, nor even among all the house of Israel. This was the most wicked of any people on earth. That took place during his lifetime. And they took, the horrible thing is, they took um, women and children and offered them as sacrifices, the Lamanites did, and they did sacrifice them to their idol gods. Um, imagine this scene. I and mean, I told you this was a hard lesson. They, they sacrificed their women and children t- two times when they would take them as prisoners. And um, they were helpless to stop it, and Mormon had to stand as a, as a bystander. Um, more, then on to Mormon 5. This is 375, 384 A.D. Now Mormon is 64 years old at the start of the chapter, and he will become 74 years old. And he said, I did, in verse 1, I did repent of the oath which I had made that I would no more assist them, and I, they gave me command again of their armies, for they looked upon me as though I could deliver them from their afflictions, but I was without hope, for I knew the judgments of the Lord should come upon them, for they repented not of their iniquities, but did struggle for their lives without calling upon that being who created them. It's right in front of them and they can't see it. They just need to repent. But he's so merciful and so loving as a Christ figure, as I'm saying here, that he still, he tried to help them, but he did it without hope. Um, He tried to lead them. This is interesting that, um, that um, Daniel Lod- Ledlow wrote. Well, actually, this is Sterling W. Sill wrote in a, in a book by Daniel Ledlow. If you think it is an inspiration for a 16-year-old boy that could win the leadership of a great national army, what would you think of a man between the ages of 65 and 74 who was still the best man among his entire people for this top position of leadership? And in those days, the general at the head, marched at the head of the, of not of the rear of his troops. It is one thing to shoot a guided missile at an enemy a thousand miles away, but it's quite another to meet an enemy face to face with a sword or a battle axe to take on whatever comes at you, and you're still there fighting at age 74. <laughs> no weakling or coward survives a test like that. He was still the best man the best choice and they knew God was with him so they wanted him but they didn't want to believe him. Um, So he leads them but without hope and they um, have many wars again. Um, So this is another key to surviving these times. Try and try again, don't give up, endure to the end. And that's what he's showing an example of, he's fighting for them. He writes to his son, and this is in Moroni 9 and 6. Um, He doesn't share this here, but I I wanted to, because he wrote a lot of things to his son that tells about this time, that uh, reflects his character. This is a part about not giving up and enduring And now, my beloved son, notwithstanding their hardness, let us labor diligently. For if we should cease to labor, we should be brought under condemnation. For we have a labor to perform while in this tabernacle of clay, while in our mortal bodies, that we may conquer the enemy of all righteousness and rest our souls in the kingdom of God. They're still struggling diligently to bring the gospel to them to get them to change. So an inspired learning from that is um, the kingdom of God will roll forth. Things, will, things will, um, will come about just as they are prophesied. We'll move to Moroni 6, uh, Mormon 6, because of time. Um, this is 385 AD. Mormon is now 74. And he's leading his people. And this is a sad warning of what happens to a people in civilizations who are given repeated opportunities to understand the gospel and repent, but openly refuse to. And so this is the 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 last battle. And um, So they were facing it in verse 7. They see the enemy coming upon them. Their hearts are filled with awful fear, awful dread. This is what happens at the end when the wicked know that now they will have justice. And every soul, verse 8, was filled with terror because of what was coming. And um, they, they basically, the Lamanites just alienated their entire nation let me just tell you about about these battles um, there were only 24 that were saved president Holland writes the scope and significance of that last horrible slaughter may be seen more readily when we realize that the American Civil War of the 19 of the 1860s the costliest war in terms of human life that you, the US has ever known took the lives of hundred and forty thousand men in a five-year period here today 230,000 men fell in a single day. 230,000 died in this final battle. All but 24, Mormon and Moroni being among them. I can't even imagine. um, He keeps saying, I don't want to harrow up this scene. I don't want to tell you the blood and carnage, but I need to record it. I need to tell you the consequences of such wickedness and disobedience. This is what happened to this great civilization. 230,000 people killed in one day. It's just overwhelming. And for them to have witnessed that. And um, Morone, Mormon was wounded, but they passed over him. He didn't die. They didn't kill him. They, later on, that happens. But his mission wasn't yet finished. And this is his, his, um, his lament in Mormon 6, 17. O ye fair ones, how could ye have departed from the ways of the Lord? O oh, ye fair ones, how could you have received that Jesus who stood with open arms to receive you? If you had not done this, you would not have fallen. But behold, you are fallen, and I mourn your loss. O oh, ye fair sons and daughters, ye fathers and mothers, ye husbands and wives, ye fair ones, how could you have fallen? But behold, ye are gone, and my sorrows cannot bring your return. Verse twenty-two. Oh, that ye had repented before this great destruction had come upon you, but behold, you are gone, and at the end the Heavenly Father does with you according to his justice and mercy. He laments for his people that he loved. Just as the Lord did in the allegory of the vineyard, Jacob 5, the Lord wept and said to his servant, What could I have done more for my vineyard? I've nourished it, I've digged it, I've pruned it, I've done all that I could, I've stretched forth my hand all day. It grieveth me that I should cast this into the fire. Who has corrupted my vineyard? And then Jesus himself laments people that don't repent and don't listen to him. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, and stone them which are sent unto thee! How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wing, and ye would not! Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. So what a powerful lesson, a sad, sad lesson of the lack of repenting and the lack of having the Spirit and the Lord in their lives um, and the lamenting of Mormon, who is who are so Christ-like. It just it kills him to see this happen. But it is, it is justice. He's, the Lord has extended mercy, and now that mercy has passed and it's the time for justice. The last part I want to leave you to is what I want to be hopeful. I have two minutes. Um, we have much reason to rejoice. Did you see um, President Nelson and all the apostles in Rome? Did you see in front of the Christus, that beautiful Christus that we have? They have a Christus there and all the apostles behind them. Um, Thorveson also carved Paul in the place of Judas, which I thought was wonderful. And so there's the 12 apostles, and there's the Christus. And there in front are the 12 modern-day apostles of the Lord and the First Presidency, 15 personal witnesses, sacred witnesses of Jesus Christ. And the boldness of President um, Nelson, he, he, they take advantage of social media in a positive way, in, in, in tweets and in Instagram. President um, Nelson wrote this, More than 2,000 years ago, our Savior Jesus Christ ministered to the world, establishing His Church and His gospel. He called apostles and gave them the decree to go ye therefore and teach all nations. In our day, the Lord's Church has been restored. The Savior stands at the head of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. As modern-day apostles of Jesus Christ, the message we share today is the same message that apostles shared long ago, that God lives and that Jesus is the Christ. He proclaimed this in Rome, the the capital of Catholicism, and he met with the pope, the first time that the pope and a prophet had ever met. Uh, There was a comment that these two are the only ones that claim to walk in in the footsteps of Peter, that take the place of Peter. And he complimented the the pope and said, how how wonderful it is that the Catholic people have such a wonderful, compassionate, kind leader. And they found many things to discuss together, the many causes that they are united in. He said, we have differences in doctrine, but there's many more things that unite us. And the family and the emphasis on staying away from secularism in the world and proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ. We unite in that together. With, with the Pope and the, the Catholic people who, who share many of the same beliefs. I love that, that, he, that um, they met and it was such a positive thing. He gave, them, he gave the Pope um, a small Christus and also the family proclamation. And that is the two main things that the, that the Pope stands for as well. And what a wonderful, wonderful thing that happened there. President Nelson said, this is a hinge point in the history of the church. Things are going to move forward at an accelerated pace, of which this is a part. The church is going to have an unprecedented future now, unparalleled. We're just building up what's what's ahead. And he told the members to eat their vitamins and get your rest, because the church's future is exciting. So this is from a um, 84-year-old, I mean, yeah, 94-year-old. His his wife says he's gained 30 years. He's gone back 30 years. He's just amazing. Um, let me just d- dismiss the um, the ones with kids to get your kids really quick, and I'll just I'll just close. Um, sorry, but we started kind of late with with all those announcements. But if you can get your kids, that's great. Um, so my my fi- my message is that I need to leave after this depressing um, scene that we've had. That is necessary to know about. He couldn't skip it. He couldn't say that's not we don't want to tell about that it's too it's too vicious it's too awful to think about and to look at we had to know about it we had to learn from it but we leave on a hopeful note um, that the church is in good hands the lord is at the helm of his church we have a dynamic prophet at 94 that we can't keep up with he's incredible the lord has renewed his body and his mind and he is, if you go, go on um, and listen to his wife talk about what's um, happening with him and how he receives revelation from the Lord constantly and how excited he is about this time. And I love that, thinking this is an exciting time, not a time to be dread to dread and to think, oh, no, what's coming? But, the, but he says, watch what's going to happen. It's only just begun. It's an exciting time to live. Um, here's the last scripture that Mormon says to, writes to his son. My son, be faithful in Christ, and may not the things which I have written grieve thee to weigh thee down unto death, but may Christ lift thee up. That's my testimony, that Christ can lift us up in our sorrows, in our struggles, and he will always be there for us. And I say this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.